0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 12th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5, usually, today uh, we have a slight schedule change with 4 p.m., most days we're on at 5. These calls are free and open to the public. My name is Scott Knowles, I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm serving as the host for these discussions. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We have moved the discussion today to YouTube Live. Thanks for trying this experiment with us. We tried it yesterday, it worked really well. I hope it makes it slightly easier for attendees to find the discussions. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles uh, YouTube channel, or you can email me, or you can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Uh, Please help me spread the word about the COVID calls and send suggestions for guests and future topics. Please also feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. You can also find it under COVID calls. That's soundcloud.com. Tomorrow, we will have the COVID calls at the regular time of 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we're gonna talk about global pandemic preparedness. I'm thrilled to have Andy Lakoff from the University of Southern California tomorrow. He's the author of many books, including his most recent one, Unprepared, Global Health in a Time of Emergency. Andy Lakoff is really somebody we wanna hear from at this time. As of today, there are globally 826,222 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 770,653 cases yesterday. 174,467 of those are in the United States, up from 156,931 yesterday. There are now a total of 3,000 416 deaths reported in the United States, up from 2,880 yesterday. We have now eclipsed the death total from Hurricane Katrina and also from September 11. Everyone in public health and medicine that I talk to also believes that this case count is low. I want to take a minute here to invite participants to think with me about how we can use the COVID calls as a teaching resource. We have speakers lined up all the way until early May, and I've committed to keeping the COVID calls going until there are zero new cases in the United States, if not longer. If you're looking for public health, medical, historical, policy, and other disaster research perspectives on this pandemic, for your classes, whatever your teaching environment may be, COVID calls could be a resource for you. The recordings are available on SoundCloud, but I also like to work with teachers to help meet their needs high school, community college, and college and university populations, please get in touch with me. Okay, we have a lot to cover today, so let me introduce today's first guest. The first guest is Lois Parshley a freelance investigative journalist currently based in Alaska as the 2019-2020 Snaden Chair of Journalism at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. She's covered infectious disease and global health for a decade as a features editor at Popular Science, reporting at The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, Wired, and The Washington Post. She's a former Knight-Wallace Fellow and National Geographic Young Explorer. Lois, partially, thank you so much for coming on the discussion on the COVID calls today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I just want to quote from your recent piece that's on uh, Vox, and this is from the piece. On Friday, Alaska reported 85 cases and its first COVID-19-related death. Shana Theobald, another doctor on Kodiak Island, explained the grim calculus for her state. She said, given that experts from the CDC estimate 40 to 70 percent of the state's 700." 37,500 people may eventually contract COVID-19, at least 295,000 Alaskans could get sick. That's a minimum of 14,750 people needing ICU beds. This is a really striking story. And I wonder, Lois, if you could sort of take us inside the story a little bit and tell us what challenges does rural America face in managing this pandemic?
1: Yeah, thank you. That is an excellent question. Uh, Because COVID-19 is a new disease, we're still learning in real time. So any particular statistic you hear has a lot of uncertainty attached to it. Some of the most popular models like COVID Act Now and another out of the University of Washington, which are both hyperlinked in the Vox News piece, don't align perfectly. But what we do know for sure are the trends. Roger Ray, who is a retired neurologist and a consulting director with the Chartist Group, told me, if we believe that the way seasonal flu spreads through the country is likely similar to COVID-19, rural eruptions tend to be later and briefer, but more impactful than in big urban areas. So experts' best guesses right now suggest that rural areas will eventually be exposed and the numbers for rural healthcare capacity are known and they don't look good.
0: Now, one of the things that um, we saw early on with the pandemic that um, I hadn't thought about till looking at this piece is that some of the places where the pandemic, where we first had hot spots, were actually technically rural areas, but they were more maybe sort of uh, wilderness, uh, outdoor recreation, ski areas like that. So maybe not all of these rural areas are are poor. Take us a little bit into the the sort of issues about economic status in these places?
1: Thank you for asking that question. That's a great question too. So one of the things that you've seen, especially over the last week or so, is people who have the means attempting to flee urban areas that are seeing dramatic numbers of cases. This is a really bad idea for a few reasons. Um, One is that uh, rural healthcare capacity isn't isn't very good in a lot of places. Um, There was an excellent Guardian article out today uh, on the city of Wellington, Kansas, where the city's only hospital abruptly closed two weeks ago. The owners explained they decided to close it in the middle of a global pandemic because it was losing money. Um, A study that came out in February of 2020 showed that more than 450 rural hospitals like this one in Kansas are vulnerable to closure. So the lifelines people in these areas rely on are already under stress. And if you're coming from an urban area with high rates of transmission, you yourself are a potential source of infection. So not only might you be getting other people sick by going to a second home at the beach or in the mountains, but if you get sick while you're there, they might not have the capacity to help take care of you. So, like many like many things to do with health, um, we're seeing fault lines along economic lines. Uh, but what's really important to remember is that the best place right now for you to be is where you already are. Travel is a, a big source of transmission.
0: Well, I know you know a lot of us who keep up with issues around the opioid epidemic are also aware of the heavy stress that that's placed on rural healthcare. Are there? I mean, so now we have a compounded disaster potentially in some of these places. Are there extraordinary steps, extraordinary resources that rural health care centers have access to either already from the opioid epidemic that they can apply here or because of uh, the recent funding bill that was passed? What are they turning to to help in many cases to staff places that might have on a normal day a very low staff?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question, too. So uh, a lot of rural healthcare facilities like urban facilities right now are attempting to transition to telemedicine in places where they're able to see patients virtually. They're attempting to do so. They're rescheduling non-essential um, procedures, although some of those things are, in fact, very essential, like keeping people's uh, heart treatment um ongoing cancer treatments, things along those lines. Um, So the key message here for me is that while everyone is at risk of infection, not everyone is equally vulnerable. I had the opportunity to report from South Africa on emerging disease for Scientific American a few years ago. And I keep thinking about something that that the sources for that article told me. Um, I interviewed the head of South Africa's Center for Emerging Zoonotic and Parasitic Diseases. And he, he, didn't, he didn't mince his words. He said, who creates this environment for emergence? You can't just accuse nature. Uncontrolled urbanization, climate change, poverty, those things aren't nature. The answer is that we're creating the situation for the emergence of many of these diseases. And arguably, poverty is already the greatest risk factor for getting sick. There are so many incomprehensible tragedies coming. How do you social distance if you live in a slum? In Liberia, another country where I've done reporting, I covered the Ebola outbreak in 2014 and 2015, it's a country of five million people and they have just three ventilators. But these same issues of resource scarcity exist in this country too. For the Vox article, I spoke to Ethel Branch, who is a former attorney general for the Navajo Nation. And she says it's very clear already that underlying inequalities in that rural area are exacerbating these risks. A third of the Navajo Nation doesn't have running water. A third doesn't have access to electricity. Many families live in multi-generational homes, increasing elders' risks of infection. And risk factors like diabetes and asthma are very common.
0: So what you're describing there, actually, I mean, we've talked about the problem of rural health. But it maybe we're really talking about poverty here and just concentrated um, in certain rural areas. I mean, you know, we have plenty of poverty. The conditions you just described could also be in Philadelphia and St. Louis and and New York city as well. Um, So we're not only talking about um, geography, but we're also talking about concentration of of poverty. And I really um, thank you for bringing in this international perspective. So we think about um, the global North as industrialized and urbanized, but you're talking about Africa and places that are that are rural. Um, that's an important perspective for us to keep in mind. You mentioned Native Americans. So have you had a chance to do any reporting from um, Native American reservations or talk to Native American communities about how they may be preparing and planning for the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I have. And it's really important to note that these communities are not hapless victims. They are taking active steps to to help themselves prepare as best they can. Um, Bethel, for example, which is a a village hub here in Alaska for a wider rural area, is sending out mask kits for people. Checkpoints for the annual Iditarod dog sled race in Alaska, which normally goes through many rural villages, saw some dramatic changes. Uh, the villages chose to move the checkpoints to remote locations outside of town to discourage people from coming into town and, and potentially being sources of infection. Um, so, so people are taking the steps that they, they can to try to keep themselves safe but we need clear, strong federal guidance and communication to move resources to places as they hit case surges and we need innovative grassroots options like the ones I just mentioned. Covering other outbreaks has taught me that your community is the most important thing in a global health emergency. Public health messaging aid and support are always most effective when coming from the people you already know. And so many people, janitors, grocery clerks, drivers, and of course, doctors and nurses are still showing up to work knowing they don't have what they need to stay safe in order to take care of others. So the silver lining of all this is that this disaster is going to turn the the ordinary task of trying to do the right thing into a heroic act. And we're having the chance to see that so, so many people are willing to help each other, no matter how afraid we feel.
0: So I wanna welcome everyone again who may just be joining us to the COVID calls today. We're starting with Lois Parshley talking about uh, her article in Vox.com about rural health and the pandemic. And I'll be joined in a few minutes by Peter Shulman to talk about the Defense Production Act. You can send questions any way you want to. You can send them to me and just um, send to me on Twitter. You can email me, sgk23 at drexel.edu or you can use the chat function on YouTube live and I'll get those questions. Thank you. So, um, Lois, let me ask you one more question um, here about the rural American story. Uh, and so we're into Trump country when you start talking about these places where some of the projections, like your Alaska projection, um, are really chilling. You know, places where there just are not enough hospitals and not enough ICU beds. What's the political angle here? Many of these are still places where governors, if I'm right, have not ordered shelter in place yet, because the numbers are low right right now, but also for ideological reasons, correct? I mean, can you take us a little bit into your political reading of this situation?
1: Yeah, and that's, that, that's kind of the inevitable takeaway in the United States right now, given our, our political fracturing. Um, there will eventually be political considerations to this. You're already seeing different states react quite differently as far as what shelter in place orders and and travel orders are put in place. And unfortunately, you can also track the case numbers um, that correspond with those things. Florida, for example, has been notoriously slow in in putting in social distancing implementation, and um, they're now seeing a surge in cases. you'll see rippling effects of this. Um, For example, New York has already delayed their primary, Uh, but what's important here is to listen to the science and, and not the politics you're seeing a few different headlines I won't call on any by name talking about this like it's a political game that that Trump's re-election advisors are are happy that so far it appears that democratic coastal cities are getting hit the hardest um there's some of the the horse race type commentary that we often see around American politics but I think that's inappropriate for this time. And one of the people you'll see who's doing a really good job at not doing this is Scott Gottlieb. He's a former FDA commissioner and a conservative Republican. And he tweeted on March 30th, um, something which I think is unfortunately very true. He said, germ theory will prevail. This virus is a national epidemic. And while we hope some communities will be spared, we should expect many places to be engulfed. And just because the virus hasn't reached every city yet it doesn't mean that it won't. So I'm paraphrasing here. But um, it's important not to treat this like a political game. It's important to treat it like the life and death disaster that it is.
0: Yeah, I I think that's very well said. I mean, and you know, it's one thing for certain governors. I mean, the governor of Oklahoma, for example, who tweeted the picture of himself out in a public place saying, you know, something making fun basically of sheltering, Uh, and then 24 hours later, that tweet was gone and, and he had reversed course. So you know there is that sense that the politics um, dries up very quickly when the reality of taking care uh, of a governor's state or of a mayor's uh, population um, is is right in front of them and is pressing at the same time. Though I think we have to take into account that this is a president who ran his entire campaign campaign and presidency on the idea of not just questioning science but undermining science. I mean, actually saying what the scientists are telling you just can't. Be believed. Is it possible in red states, people who bought into that, maybe even voted for Trump based on that, can turn on a dime and now all of a sudden start trusting scientists, uh, public health experts? I mean, what's your, what's your sense of that in rural America? Are people going to turn around and trust the scientists when they start to see these case numbers or not?
1: I think right now what you're seeing is a sort of an unfortunate artifact of human nature. Um, for anyone who was watching the headlines in China in January, it was pretty clear what was coming. Um, all of the, the infectious disease experts that I know have been uh, panicked and increasingly frustrated at people's seeming inability to see that this was was coming here. Um, and yet people have a hard time treating other people's pain as real as their own. Um, so I'm afraid that the, none of us will escape um, seeing direct impacts of COVID-19. But I, I also think that we have to hope and help and encourage people to start listening to the science and do our best to share accurate information because unfortunately Uh, in an epidemic, you're only as safe as the most vulnerable populations. And that can either come from poverty or from listening to Fox News. (laughs) So I I think it's important to do our best to try and overcome these political gaps and to discuss this in as non-political a manner as possible. Um, Unfortunately, I'm I'm reminded of that bumper sticker, which goes, uh, the great thing about science is that it works whether you believe it or not. Um, Unfortunately, the same applies to viruses.
0: So, people who've been participating in these discussions and who are disaster researchers are fully aware that vulnerable populations suffer suffer disproportionately in disaster. I hadn't heard anybody put it quite the way you just did that in this particular moment, uh, Fox News is a contributor to vulnerability, but I think that's something we're gonna be studying um, through this and after this, um, when it ends, uh, to try to understand actually Maybe uh, people's trust before a disaster happens, who they trust to communicate with them. Maybe that is changeable in the midst of a disaster. I certainly hope that that's true. I want to ask you one more question, Lois, uh, while I have you here. And that's actually just about how you reported this story. I've been asking every journalist who's joined our conversation. Um, Journalists like to get out and about in the field. Uh, You are not able to do that. You already have, I mean, you don't have to tell us all your trade secrets, but how do you report a story, um, you're in Alaska, but you're not out in the field in Alaska. How do you report a story about rural America from your house?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's a, a great question. And I, it's especially true for me. I'm normally a long form journalist who spends months or sometimes years on any one story. Clearly that's not possible during breaking news like COVID-19. Um, so I would say it's a, it's a combination of drawing on existing sources who I I've, have already made the acquaintance of in infectious and global health circles, um, which gave me a leg up. And then also using social media platforms to reach mm-hmm. out to people who were already posting publicly about the issues that they were facing and then spending a lot of time on the phone.
0: It absolutely shows the importance of having uh, having and nurturing research relationships, relationships with sources in good times, so that when disasters happen, we have those networks ready to go.
1: And if you don't mind, I'd love to make a plug here. I think journalism as an industry is is facing a, a severe problem that is also being being under discussed. Um, a lot of Local journalism, we're already hanging on by a shoestring. We mean, I'm sure that it won't be news to you that local papers have been struggling financially for a long sure. time now. Um, but that source of local news is especially important in a pandemic like this, where you want to have accurate local information. So, those local newspapers are performing an essential public service, but they need your help to do it. Um, if you have the means, please go subscribe to your local paper, or your local radio station, because they really need your help right now to keep producing this kind of accurate public health information.
0: That is so well said, and we're going to have a COVID calls discussion later with some reporters and editors from local uh, newspapers as well, because that's very obvious in this case that the necessity, unfortunately, for outsiders to report stories that are really require much, you know, local sourcing. So I'm glad you were able to pull this story together. Congratulations on that. And thank you for the work you're doing, Lois, Parsley. Thanks for joining us on COVID Calls.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So we're going to turn now to our second guest today, Peter Shulman. Uh, Peter is a professor of history at Case Western Reserve University. He studies technology, science, and American politics in the 19th and 20th centuries. He's particularly interested in History of Energy, Environmental History, Communication and Transportation, the History of American Foreign Relations. He's the author of Coal and Empire, the Birth of Energy Security in Industrial America. And you may have seen his recent piece in the Washington Post about the Defense Production Act. It was a really vital piece. It arrived at exactly the right moment. Um, So I'd like to welcome Peter Shulman. Thanks so much for coming and joining us on COVID Calls today.
2: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: So, Peter, I want to um, make a little just come back to your piece in the Washington Post. I'm going to give a little uh, quote here. You know, at a time when uh, many of us are thinking about goods, materials that we don't spend much time thinking about, like masks and gloves, PPE, uh, ventilators, reagents, uh, disease test kits, on and on and on. On the 22nd, Uh, of this month, Donald Trump said, the federal government is not supposed to be out there buying vast amounts of items and then shipping. You know, he shrugged, we're not a shipping clerk. Uh, Well, so I mean, you know, the President says lots of things. But in your piece in the Washington Post, you really walked us through uh, what you see as the problem with President Trump's approach, and you give us kind of the background of the Defense Production Act. So I want to get into all of that with you t- uh, today, and I wonder if you could just start and just talk to us about the history of the Defense Production Act. What are it, its antecedents? What was it brought about to do?
2: Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, I'll just start off by, by making clear, and this is my argument in the piece in the Post, The United States federal government is a great shipping clerk. It's a vital shipping clerk. It's one of the most important jobs that the federal government can play in a national emergency is to be a shipping clerk. Uh, This is something that um, many national leaders that are famous for other things, people like Franklin Roosevelt, uh, back in their earlier parts of their careers, were deeply concerned with. Back when Franklin Roosevelt was an assistant secretary of the Navy, he was dealing with logistics. This was really the key complex question that he had to, to wrestle with. Uh, both before and during World War I. Um, yeah, so the, the basic gist of the piece is thinking about national mobilizations in times of crisis. And the first two big ones that I, I mentioned, of course, are World War I and World War II. Uh, I think there's probably a, a similar story you could you could fit in uh, the role of the New Deal during the Great Depression, and then leading into after World War II, into the, the, the Cold War. Uh, if we think about this kind of big period of time of, over the course of the 20th century, uh, starting with World War I as this you know, massive national economic mobilization for a war effort. And this was the first time that the U.S. was fighting uh, a massive uh, war, participating in this global conflict at this industrial scale on another continent. Mm. Uh, that took an enormous amount of industrial mobilization. Um, U.S. involvement in the war was relatively short compared to the other belligerents, about a year and a half. Uh, but it required, no one knew that at the time, how long it would last once the U.S. got involved. Uh, and what, uh, what ended up happening was the you know, vast scale of the civilian economy wasn't able to meet the needs of the war effort. And so the federal government set up Congress, basically authorizing the president to set up a series of ad hoc agencies to manage various aspects of procurement and organization Uh, Some were agencies that dealt specifically with the food supply to make sure that troops overseas got food. Uh, Some had to do with fuel. Uh, Coal was the most important, but oil and gas fell in there uh, as well. Uh, And uh, and distribution networks, right? Thinking about railroads as being kind of the the most important uh, Mm -hmm. infrastructure at the time for distribution of of material goods, uh, it was essential that this railroad network work towards the national interest at the time. Um. So one of the stories I tell in the piece is about uh, it, it was not that the U.S. lacked coal. There was lots of coal in the U.S. There was lots of demand for coal in the U.S. But because of this, the system of you know scores and scores of different competing railroad companies, uh, there was no easy logistical way to get the coal from where it existed to where it was needed. So uh, for the Wilson administration, making use of the Fuel Administration, the Railroad Administration, they basically nationalized the railroads for a temporary period of time and put in all sorts of new restrictions on coal consumption to rationalize the system for the duration of the crisis, to make sure that the, the cars would flow with the fuel that was needed uh, to the places where it needed to go. But then, you know, 1918 ends, and all of these ad hoc agencies demobilize. Uh, the railroads go back into private ownership. And uh, not much additional kind of preparation for national crisis of this scale happens until first the Depression and then World War II, in which, uh, at which time the federal government launches a whole new series of ad hoc emergency agencies to handle uh, all of the national mobilization needs of the government. So, for World War II, for those of your, you, know, the viewers here who are familiar with this, this history of wartime mobilization, agencies like the War Production Board, Office of Price Administration, uh, uh, you know, agencies that dealt with labor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wage stabilization, all sorts of kind of mobilization agencies. Uh, and what they developed for the for the war effort, if you think about World War Two, right, the, the military needs tanks and trucks, and ships, and aircraft, munitions, clothing, medical supplies, food, vast amount of, uh, of goods. And what the government settles on doing by 1942 is uh, identify, you know, the key materials that were needed across the, the war mobilization effort, uh, steel, aluminum, copper. And the government turned to the major procurement agencies, like the, the people who were doing the buying, the army, maybe, mm-hmm. and said, what do you need? What do you need for, uh, for, to prosecute the war according to the national strategy? And they get the responses, And then they turn and go to industry and they collect a whole bunch of industrial leaders and say, okay, here's what the army needs. Here's what the Navy needs. Here are our priorities in order of uh, essential nature. What's involved? How much stuff do you need? How much steel do you need to make these different goods? And it was this collaboration, uh, it was called the Controlled Materials Plan. It was this collaboration that basically facilitated the mobilization, economic mobilization of the war effort. And what the federal government did was say, look, for a temporary period for the duration of this crisis, the federal government is going to basically be in charge of not 100%, but almost 100% of steel, aluminum, copper, these key materials. And they were going to allocate it to particular uh, industrial firms that were participating in war production. So GM or GE or tons of other companies. Uh, And those companies could then work with their subcontractors and say, we have x amount of steel we're going to allocate to this subcontractor this amount for this you know for these parts of the production line and to this subcontractor uh, this amount so it actually gave an enormous amount of autonomy to the companies but it made sure that the entire system overall was rationalized in a way that the needs of the army and the navy were going to be met
0: okay so so you've given us the the background here of ramping up an industrial economy for global conflict twice within a relatively short period of time with an economic depression mobilization in between. Uh, there's a little Drexel connection here that you may be aware of. Drexel's second president, Hollis Godfrey, just at the time when Drexel was becoming an engineering school. And I think this was common in other engineering schools in America during World War I. He got involved in, in war production logistics. he left his post at Drexel for a little while, became sort of a dollar, dollar a year man. And the Drexel Cooperative Education came out of that, but because he was really frustrated with this challenge of trying to integrate higher education, the government, and production. I mean, this is a, this required a real growth of knowledge in logistics and management. So you've sketched out this story for us. All the that was not a an advertisement for Drexel University, by the way. It's a relevant story. Um, yeah, so, so, but, okay, so you've, you've got us through World War II, but that's still, we're still in the background of the Defense Production Act. So that's in the background, and then the Cold War breaks out. So what's the sort of legislative moment in which the DPA comes to exist?
2: Sure. So what basically happens is, after World War II, all of these agencies gradually demobilize, it wasn't immediate, but they gradually start to demobilize just yeah. after, just like after World War One. But Rapidly, and for those uh, you know watching listening who are familiar with the history of the origin of the Cold War, uh, you know very quickly the u s and the Soviet Union you know get into this uh, this conflict. And the alumni of these World War II agencies say, "Look, we can't just wait for the next crisis. We can't wait for the next war to begin to have some kind of legal architecture in place to run this mobilization effort again. So all these veterans of these agencies say, look, these are all the lessons you have learned. This is what worked, this is what didn't. Let's get a legislative architecture in place. uh, So so if the next conflict breaks out, uh, we're ready to go. And initially this included everything from, you know, the industrial mobilization, wage stabilization, uh, you know, price stabilization to prevent inflation. It was a whole range of of things, a really vast uh, project. Uh, And so there's kind of a brief transitional moment. After the Korean War broke out in the summer of 1950, that was when this legislation for the Defense Production Act sailed through Congress in September of 1950 and provided basically the structure for which the U.S. mobilized for the Korean War. So that's where the the act initially came from. And it was was drafted by people who had been themselves... you know, deeply involved in World War II mobilization, so that's that's where it, it originally comes from.
0: What, so it passed the Congress in 51, 50, 51, 1950, 1950,
2: <laughs> September 1950, uh, with a one-year authorization. It was reauthorized uh, with some amendments in 51. Additionally, with some amendments in 1952, and then pretty much for the most part, every year or two after that, reauthorized with gradual uh, gradual amendments. It lapsed at one point. 1990 but was quickly uh, reauthorized. So we basically had a version of this um, this act in place uh, for the past 70 years.
0: Sometimes I think back to the that few years right around there and the reorganization of the government is still uh, you know I mean we rightfully we talk about the Great Depression but I think we've also got to talk about that period from 47 to 52. Uh, you know the, the entire civil defense apparatus is created in 50 and 51 and I guess the, the way you're describing it the DPA is also sort of uh, a partner to the civil defense apparatus as it was being created, right?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and again, the, the vision was uh, industrial mobilization needs to happen quickly. Uh, and you know, the, the war in Korea, even as it was conceived of originally as a, as a relatively small war, um, actually involved an enormous amount of mobilization, not to the scale of World War II, but you no know, one knew where it could go. And certainly uh, you know, a broader conflict were to break out either in the Far East or in Europe, uh, would require, uh, you know, a massive mobilization. So it was very, um, you know, the, the you think about the National Security Act of 1947, Defense Production Act was one of the, you know, seminal pieces of early Cold War legislation.
0: So parts of it have been repealed. There are a few parts of it that persevere. You've given us a great background. There's a, there's a term that's been floating around just so I can understand it more. So what is allocation? that seems to be one of the features of the DPA. On the one hand, we think the DPA is about making, you know, turning assembly lines into making things they weren't before, we'll get to that. But there's also this allocation power, which I'm still not sure I completely comprehend. Can you explain?
2: Yeah, so the the way the act has been used over the years since 1950, in in a sense, it was the uh, um, kind of legal foundation for mobilization, like I mentioned, for Korea, for Vietnam, right? Agent Orange was uh, was a Defense Production Act um, really uh, a program. Uh, basically, the federal government turned to a whole bunch of chemical companies and said, "You have to make this." And some of them were willing, and at least one company didn't want to manufacture it. And the government said, "Well, you have to." Defense Production <laughs> Act says we can compel any company uh, that has the capacity to really? perform some some good or serv- you know produce some good or perform some service uh, to produce. Um, uh, later, this actually becomes interesting. There was a Supreme Court case back in the, the mid 90s uh, for a manufacturer of, the, of Agent Orange from the 60s being sued uh, for the damage caused by use of Agent Orange. And they said, the government told us we had to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out the court ruled that they, they could not, that they, they were not indemnified, uh, even though they complied. There actually are provisions for a company to argue that they should not have to uh, comply. Uh, but uh, these companies were not held um, uh, above this uh, this lawsuit. Anyway, that's a, that's a side thing. So, yeah. Vietnam, right? Agent Orange was uh, was um, among many things uh, that the federal government uh, used the Defense Production Act for. It was used in Desert Storm, uh, Desert Shield, and Desert Storm. It was used uh, after 9 11. It was used in the Iraq War. It was used in the war in Afghanistan. Um, but it tended to be, like you say, for you know specific items uh, that the government needed. So you know for you know war on terror, like you know parts for so-called smart bombs.
0: Mm.
2: Um, you know targeting and sensor equipment for drones. Uh, you know parts for body armor. Uh, you know provisions for for port security uh, and uh, you know explosive detection equipment for the the TSA. Those are the kinds of things that the government would turn uh, to companies and say, "We need you to prioritize this." And the way the basic system works is. Uh, Any company that gets a contract, the first level is a company that already has a defense contract uh, can accept a contract that has a a rating, DO rating, which means they have to perform this contract, fulfill this contract before any unrated contracts they may have, whether with the government or somewhere else in private industry, or they could get a DX contract, which supersedes the DO contracts. So that's kind of the the most important thing. You have to fulfill this before you do anything else. Uh, and, uh, so, right. So that, that's, that's kind of the, you know, the acquisitions side of it, but the allocation side, the government can also say where things have to go. Uh, this was used actually, uh, by president Clinton back at the very end of his term, end of 2000, beginning of 2001. Uh, if you remember back to the, the energy crisis in California, uh, when um, the Pacific Gas and Electric was was faltering, was about to collapse, uh, and all of these natural gas uh, producers didn't want to sell this company any gas because they thought the company was going to go under and they weren't going to get paid. Uh, now PG&E said, "Well, if we don't get the gas, we're not going to provide this vital you know resource to the citizens of California." So under the Defense Production Act, President Clinton basically forced. Companies to sell natural gas to PG&E. PG&E did not like this, but this is one of the things that the government can do: can compel you know the allocation of a particular good, uh, you know, somewhere. Uh, so that's you know those are kind of various ways that uh, that it can operate.
0: I see. Uh, and yeah. And has it been used for medical supply production in the past?
2: Yeah. So originally, right back to 1950, national defense was the, the basic framework. Go back to 1973, first energy crisis. Richard Nixon's president. This is the first time that the Defense Production Act gets invoked for national security purposes that were not for prosecuting a war. Vietnam was obviously you know, winding down at this point, but still going on. Uh, but as you know, early in '73, even before the, the embargo, as oil prices were were getting higher and uh, at, and as uh, access to supplies was was shrinking the military found it could not get enough fuel, but all mm. the contracts needed and could not buy enough jet fuel. They were cutting back on training flights. They were cutting back on on uh, missions. They couldn't get the fuel they needed. Once the embargo happens in October, then within a short period of time, the president invokes the Defense Production Act and says, look, we're not in a war, but national security requires in this crisis uh, that the government get uh, the fuel that it needs. Now, this opened up this... Um, uh, this question of using the, the act for non strictly military purposes. I see,
0: I see, okay.
2: Yeah, and then what, over the years that follow, in the 90s and the early 2000s, the act is explicitly broadened to cover uh, um, issues of emergency preparedness, so FEMA could invoke it, uh, and for critical infrastructure uh, protection and restoration, those things become explicit provisions that includes economic security, public health security, and, and safety. So that's all now in the provisions of the, the current. I see. Form of it.
0: Okay, so it's already made that that transition. That would not be some sort of new power that would have to be vested in the D. Line, ready to be totally ready to be used. Okay. So I want to remind um, listeners that uh, we have uh, Peter Shulman on right now on the COVID calls talking about the Defense Production Act, and you can get your questions in using the YouTube live chat, or you can just send a question to Twitter, just tag me at US of Disaster. I want to also give a shout out to uh, Canevery Valencius and her class that she's teaching right now, Powering America, which is a science and history core class at Boston College. I think she has students who are joining this call with us today. Peter, tuning in for you. Um, And I have a question here from Michael Dennis. He said, a student in class today uh, mentioned that the United Auto Workers wanted factories closed and workers became ill. Um, Peter, what can you say about the Defense Production Act and the role of unions?
2: Uh, That's a great question. Uh, The history here is kind of fraught, the earliest uh, earliest provisions of the DPA included um, uh, titles that dealt with labor. Uh, And back during the Korean War in 1952, steel workers, unionized steel workers, were looking to um, uh, improve their uh, wages and uh, um, uh, had a series of demands on the major steel manufacturers. but at the same time, President Truman was trying to prosecute the Korean War. And when steelworkers threatened to uh, uh, to strike, United Steelworkers threatened to strike, it was partly by invoking these now defunct uh, provisions of the Defense Production Act that Truman's nationalized the steel industry, mm. uh, nationalized the, the steel mills. This goes to the Supreme Court, uh, and they basically strike his actions down, in part because he supposedly didn't invoke the DPA Properly, uh, they don't strike the act down, but say that you didn't use it in the right way. Uh, so th- that's kind of a, a you know a way a, a way that it's come up in the past with uh, with unions. Um, you know, right now the, the authority really rests with the president and, and uh, how the president can delegate authority for invoking it to a, a long series of uh, of agencies and uh, departments. Uh, and you know, I think if anything. When workers make this call to you know uh, um, to kind of put pressure on their own companies to act or to put pressure on the federal government to act, what it's revealing is the way the, the 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 free market is not able to respond adequately to the scale of the kind of crisis that we're in right now, and that's really the key thing I mean we've seen uh, you know you mentioned at the beginning uh, you know the way the president has kind of dismissed the notion of the federal government as being a shipping clerk. Uh, But, you know, what he's further done is implied that the defense production act is a kind of uh, a punishment, right? He's, he's used it rhetorically uh, as a way to kind of threaten companies. If you don't comply with our negotiations, we'll we'll stick the defense production act on you. That's not the value of this law. The value is always to work in partnership, in collaboration between government and industry, and with workers, towards the national interest in things that can't be managed by the private market uh, as it exists right now. It's to kind of work for a temporary period of time, organized production to meet a much greater national end than can be met by companies competing. Uh, and so, you know, if anything, I think the the role that workers are playing now is. Uh, is a not only a moral one or public health one, uh, but a uh, you know deeply political one to encourage uh, and really demand this um, this action.
0: Well, the politics of it in this moment, uh, to me, are just enormously complicated because you know we've heard from you know many different uh, companies saying, "Tell us what to make." bring us in to this conversation and i mean sometimes that's also been about free advertising elon musk saying if there would need ventilators we shall make ventilators you know this this kind of thing but i think there's also been a lot of really well-meaning companies that have said let us into this tell us what's needed well we need information Um, and we're not going to just go out and make you know fifty thousand units of something and not know who needs it and where.
2: Retool the factory, hire workers in a exactly. condition where they have social distance. Right, There are a lot of variables here.
0: So that speaks to this, this sort of need, as you said earlier, about the, the logistics expertise that was demonstrated in World War I and World War II and throughout the Cold War. The government, not about nationalizing factories, but actually serving as a sort of information source and arbiter to organize a market, not to control a market. So right. when Trump on the one hand, talks about, in, in some ways, in a sober, serious way, we, sh- we might need the DPA. And then he tweets the next day, you better open that factory in Lordstown or I'm gonna come down there and open it myself. He's, I don't understand, I mean, often I don't understand what he's doing, but how do you read the politics of, of this moment? Is he using that as a, as a threat? Is he signaling to his base that he's got this under control? I'm just confused by his actions here.
2: I, I'm, <laughs> I don't know the answer. I, I have my own speculations, yeah. um, you know in part based on you know some of really the great reporting that I've seen and probably read as well. Uh, you know, I think w- whether the president understands what is possible, I don't know. From the way he talks about it, it sounds like he's misrepresenting uh, the uh, the powers and the significance of the Defense Production Act. Is that deliberate or is that inadvertent? I don't know. What I do know is, uh, you know, there's been reporting that he's been lobbied by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce not to use the Defense Production Act.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I have yet to see additional reporting on, you know, which companies in particular are are, uh, you know, members of the of the Chamber of Commerce are are particularly vocal on this, uh, and what their reasoning is. I assume it's in part. Uh, that, you know, some companies see, you know, greater profits in being able to see who's willing to pay more for what they produce. And some, it might be ideological. They don't want to see the government, uh, you know, playing this role in the economy, even if it's for a great period of time. I think there's there's some speculation uh, that, you know, if, if the current administration, you know, invokes the act and things don't go great, then they're on the hook uh, politically and would rather, uh, you know, Rather not be holding the bag uh, if things, in terms of public health or, or the economy, continue to uh, to get worse, uh, that they could say, "Oh no, we've done everything everything right. We've done everything we could. It's everybody else who's who's screwed up." I I speculate that that's a part of a part of it as well, um, but uh, it's whatever the explanation is. It's deeply unfortunate for the for the United States.
0: You think that this is what FEMA is is That's why FEMA was basically called in. HHS was more or less fired from the management of this uh, disaster. FEMA Federal Emergency Management Agency has now been tasked. They're experts. They're they're not used to operating in 50 states and all seven territories all at once, but they're the experts in managing supply chain and logistics and coordination. And when they need water, they get water. And when they need plywood, they get plywood. And when they need gurneys, they get gurneys. I think, rightfully, there are things to criticize about FEMA, but honestly, it's an underfunded, way underappreciated federal agency. They have the expertise in this moment. Are are they the ones, are they the linchpin here to invoking yeah. the DPA? I mean, the, Trump will or will not do something based on what somebody tells him. Are they the ones that need to go to him and say, make this happen?
2: Right. So you can imagine, right, in, in the uh, executive order, I feel like it was now almost two weeks ago that the president first five years uh, ago (laughs)
0: Peter
2: I lose track of time Uh, you know first invoked but didn't actually or or maybe authorize the use of the DPA by HHS but didn't actually invoke it and they've gone back and forth multiple times on this on the same point Um, you know HHS is one of the agencies that that can you know apply to the president to use the Defense Production Act what would make the most sense if you think back even to the World War II analogy, uh, World War II experience, the Army and the Navy actually had pretty sophisticated um, uh, procurement operations. The Navy's was always better than the Army's, but another story. Uh, but we don't need HHS to, to really play that role. HHS just needs to say, how much does the country need? Right? HHS should be able to go you know, work with the, the public health officials across the country and say, you know, do an inventory for us of all your hospitals. How much, you know, how much, you know, different kinds of PPE do you, you know, do you have? What do you need? How many ventilators do you need? How many hospital hospital beds do you have? Do that kind of inventory and then turn around and say, tell FEMA, okay, this is what the country needs. Now you go do the logistics to make sure that, uh, uh, that we can get the, the, the required goods produced and then allocated where they're needed most and be able to move the, you know, move supplies around as needs, um, Will presumably change in the months the months ahead.
0: Let me ask you about the international perspective here. Is this how other countries run things? Do they have? Is there a South Korean DPA? Is there a German DPA? Is, do they have these There's extraordinary powers? DPA. There is a Canadian
2: yeah. DPA that yeah. was oh, based on the American one. Actually, uh, um, I actually don't know if they've, they've invoked that one. Um, but where lots of countries, other industrial countries, uh, you know, Japan, South Korea, uh, China countries across Europe where they differ from the United States is in having a political culture that is much more comfortable with government intervention in the economy. Uh, And that is something that in the years following World War II, Americans say World War II and the depression, uh, Americans were more comfortable with the government playing a more obvious organizing role, at least in in terms of emergencies and structuring the economy. For the past 40 years, Americans have kind of lost that muscle memory and the political culture as it's kind of lurched, you know, further and further towards, you know, free market fundamentalism has, has seen, you know, the Americans kind of not think of the government as being capable uh, or even capable of playing that role or or appropriately playing that role. When in fact, it's the only institution that can play the kind of role that we need now. Uh, So I think other countries are, you know, ones that have more sophisticated industrial policies, Mm -hmm. South Korea uh, or Japan that is, you know, has a much closer relationship um, between its major industries and, uh, and government policy. It's much more natural to, to have these kind of relationships and, uh, you know, uh, emergency uh, planning implementation. This country, you know, for political culture, partly for its decentralized federalism, federalist culture, it makes it harder to do that right now, unfortunately.
0: But the use of the phrase free market fundamentalism is really striking to me in in part because it also uh, sort of describes that as a belief you know and and a faith in the free market and yet people are finding out right now that you don't just turn the supply chain on when you want to you don't just sort of go to amazon and say you know 50,000 ventilators please and it and it shows up what what have americans i think you were just getting to this i mean what have why do americans think that's the way the supply chain works why do we not have a good grip on on why we can't get these materials this quickly
2: uh, well, I mean, in part, it's because we've had uh, an incredibly successful growth of an you know, integrated global economy over the past several decades okay. that's made, you know, just in time manufacturing and, uh, you know, consumer satisfaction really um, uh, really most people's experience. Americans haven't had a national disruption of this kind. Of course, we've had the, the crisis of 2008, but that wasn't a crisis of material goods not being mm-hmm. available. Uh, That was a financial crisis. Uh, And, you know, but the kind of crisis where, you know, supply chains are are disrupted uh, and there aren't, you know, immediately activatable uh, backups or, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, storage for emergencies. We don't have those kinds of uh, repositories to the degree that we ought to. Uh, You know, we're discovering in this breakdown situation,
0: uh, you know,
2: how the system used to work and can't work under the circumstances we're in right now.
0: I think this is going to be, again, one of these issues we're going to really want to think hard about. Why is it in our pandemic planning that the disruption of the global supply chain hadn't been considered? That every country would need to hold on to its own supplies in a global pandemic situation, and so that you couldn't, under a different kind of disaster situation, if you needed a particular kind of material or a particular kind of medicine, the idea is you would be able to get it because that disaster is not happening global, si- globally simultaneously. But why did we miss this in our, in our planning, do you think?
2: I, I, I'm not sure it was missed. I think there are plenty of uh, people who use. study this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very, they just weren't very listened
0: to. List. <laughs>
2: um, but if you, you, know, you look at uh, uh, how you know, where does the political will have to come from? It comes from Congress. It comes from the president. Uh, and to invest, you know, to have the federal government spend money on things that might not be used for a year, 10 years, 50 years, ever, maybe, Uh, you know, to have a stockpile of supplies that have, for good reason, expiration dates and have to be, you know, thrown out if they're not used. I I think in in a political system that we have right now, that's harder for, you know, uh, public officials to justify, um, but it's insurance. It's insurance for emergencies. That's the purpose of having uh, having this kind of insurance. So yeah, I think people were, there were people who study this sort of thing who were perfectly aware of these dangers and aware of these risks, uh, but in the moment, um, it's easy to overlook them. I, I'll give an example here. Uh, one of the other things that I study is uh, st- uh, strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, which was created in the 1970s after the first uh, oil crisis. And it basically consists of these massive underground hollowed out salt caverns uh, in uh, Louisiana and Texas. And they're filled up with uh, with oil, refined to uh, unrefined for refined uh, petroleum products. And back in the late 20 aughts, late Bush administration, when for various geopolitical reasons, the price of oil was really high. It's like over $120 a barrel today. It's like negative dollars. It's ridiculous, right. uh, but it was very high at the time. And, you know, Bush insisted in the time where, you know, terrorism was a major concern uh, that uh, oil supplies have to be protected. Uh, the U S has to fill up the strategic petroleum reserve for the first time since it was created. And there was a lot of objections. a lot of members of Congress, many Democrats in particular, said this is a completely ridiculous use of money to, to spend, spend you know, precious tax dollars when uh, um, oil is at its most expensive to fill up this reserve for, you know, for needs that we may never have. But he insisted and the reserve was, was filled. And then 2008 happened, the economy collapsed, price of oil went down, it kind of settled into a steady state that was uh, you know, much lower than it had been uh, prior to the crisis. Uh, and then Congress starts kind of going on this spree of basically selling off uh, the reserve uh, and, you know, arguing that, you know, we don't really, we don't really need it that much, right? We, can, we have other ways we can get oil in an emergency. Uh, and, you know, it was partly used to pay for the tax cuts in 2017. Uh, and, uh, but that kind of just shows that, you know, the thinking that uh, members of Congress have, that it's it's easy to, to think, well, right. The last crisis has kind of receded enough from memory that we don't really need to keep in place uh the the insurance policy that we've started uh you know to prevent against that kind of risk in the future it's eventually the risk happen, or eventually the the problem happens again
0: it's a remarkable history you're telling us about the formation of a piece of legislation that grants the federal- government extraordinary capacity and yet somehow uh in many unsurprising ways, as you describe, we've lost the ability to even think how it could be used because of our own beliefs about the market, because of growth of the global supply chain, and because I guess how distant now World War I and World War II seem to people, although now that we've been talking about the 1918 pandemic, I think those parallels to World War I um, are back in front of us and we need to be thinking hard about what was learned in those, in those cases.
2: I'll say, if Phil Graham, a uh, uh, very important uh, conservative Republican legislator, um, after Clinton had used the DPA towards the end of his term in California, referred to it as the most powerful and potentially dangerous American law. The most powerful. We're not using it precisely in a time when it should be used. Uh, uh, it's, it's really mind-boggling to me.
0: Well, I think there are going to be a lot of questions to be asked, particularly with a shortage that's predicted of ventilators, and not just in urban areas, as we heard the first part of our discussion today, but in rural America, particularly, um, why the president didn't use this power when he had it. Um, Peter Shulman, I wanna thank you again so much for giving us this really masterclass in American history and the DPA, and I wanna remind people that uh, Peter's book, Colon Empire, The Birth of Energy Security in Industrial America is really worth checking out, and we hope to get you back Um, Peter at some point later, if the DPA is invoked and used in in some way, we'll want to certainly talk with you again. I want to remind everyone also that you can join us tomorrow at 5 p.m., the normal time, on YouTube live. And our guest tomorrow talking about global pandemics will be Andy Lakoff. So thank you very much for being with us. Stay healthy, everyone. And we will see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Thank you, Peter.